2 Kings chapter 6. Uh, while you're turning there, I want to introduce myself. My name is Brian, and I'm an assistant pastor here at Strong Tower. And my primary duty here is to, uh, I'm the church planner of your church plant in Bartow, Oak City Church. And uh, so I send greetings from your church plant and from Bartow. And I want to let you know, one week from today, um, starting every week, next week at five o'clock, we are having evening services weekly. We'd love for you to come out next Sunday night at five to help us launch this, I say soft launch for evening. Our goal is after the new year to go to, to, to the morning. But we would love for our family to come and support us. It means so much to us. If you uh, have done church planning, you know every person counts, literally. We count every person. So encourage your assistant pastor, encourage your, your, your daughter uh, plant. It would mean so much. But let's get to the God's word because that's why we're here. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, see the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan and each of us get there a log and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, go. And then one of them said, be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. And so he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his ax head fell into the water and he cried out, alas, my master, it was borrowed. And then the man of God said, where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and he threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, take it up. And so he reached out his hand and he took it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing. God, you are the God of floating axe heads. You are the God who brought your son up out of the grave. You are the God that cares about all the intimate details of our lives. And you are the author of this word that we are hearing and studying today. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would speak through your word, that you would prick our hearts, that you would show us our unbelief. You would show us our fears, but yet show us your mercy and your grace and your love and your forgiveness and the biblical hope and the confident expectation that you are in control and you are good, just as we have already sung and said in music. Uh, Lord, thank you for the opportunity I have to be able to proclaim uh, your word. I pray you would use me, a crooked stick, to point your people to the way, the truth, and the life, our son, your son, our Lord Jesus. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. All right, you, you may be seated. Well, what a privilege it is to preach the first Sunday that we keep kids in here on Communion Sunday. So... Uh, this is awesome. It really is. And so I want to engage with you children because uh, sometimes, a lot of times, we're kind of talking to your parents, but uh, you guys are important. Uh, so let me ask you this. What is the most valuable thing that you have lost? Maybe a toy, maybe it was a gift. What's the most valuable thing that you've lost? Just shout it out. Anyone? Wow. Man, I thought for sure y'all would go for it. Okay, well, while you think about it, a Barbie doll, I, I heard that. What else? 
Most valuable thing that you've lost before? Your stuffed animal, okay. All right, now we're getting warmed up. That's good. You're like, are we allowed to talk in church? Yeah. Uh, what's that? Legos, very important, very important. Well, let me tell you, um, one of the most valuable things that I lost um, was not this ring because I have it on my hand, but when I was first married, uh, 20, about 20 or just over 22 years ago, my wife and I uh, were at the beach and young love, you know, we're in the water, we're hanging out or whatever. And I reach out my hand and she reaches out her hand and she goes to grab it and she grabs my ring and it slips off my finger and just slowly tumbles down. And it was one of those moments I'm watching it, it's in slow motion, and then I realize, what am I doing? I gotta go for the ring. Of course, as you imagine, the waves came and washed it away and it was gone forever. Now that was very sad, and that was very hard on a number of reasons. One, we had just gotten married, it was like maybe a month, so it was a special ring, a sign and a symbol of this covenant marriage, and we, were, we, we just graduated from college. We didn't have any money. And that was a very expensive ring. That was super valuable to see that float to the bottom of the ocean. Maybe another question, and I'll, I'll let you kind of talk to your parents about this, but has anyone ever loaned something to you? You borrowed a toy or something from a friend, and then you lost that. Ew. That's even harder. Matter of fact, when I was a youth pastor, one of my youth let me borrow his Oakley sunglasses because I never wore them before. And I thought, I want to try those out. And they were really great. Well, I left them in my car and I didn't lock my car. And someone came and stole those sunglasses, which is a pretty valuable possession. Now I only buy Walmart sunglasses that are $5. I've learned my lesson. Okay. That was very hard and humbling for this adult youth pastor to go to a student and say, hey, I'm sorry. I didn't lock my car. Someone stole your sunglasses. He was very gracious. Now, if you've ever experienced something like that, whether you've lost one of your own toys or possessions or someone loaned something to you that you lost, you know how devastating that is, especially if it was something that someone loaned to you because you got to go to that person and humble yourself and say that. You have this pit in your stomach and you you don't want to say it, but you have to because it's the right thing to do. Well, if you've ever experienced that, then you're going to understand the feeling that this man and this uh, passage we're looking at today felt and experienced when he lost something that was very valuable and it wasn't even his own. Uh, children, I also want you to listen for a story later on at the end of the sermon about a boy who cut his foot. So just be listening as we're talking and working through this passage for, for that story. But the main purpose, the main goal, what I'm trying to communicate here today is that while God is king and he's in control and he's sovereign, and he's bigger than we can ever, our minds can wrap around who God is, he is so intimately, he is so particularly involved in your life and cares about those things that seem so small. God cares about your worries, he cares about your fears, he cares about your nightmares, he cares about your lost possessions, he cares about your friends, he cares about, quote, the small stuff. And I think that that's what this passage is communicating to us today. So let me bring your attention to verse 1. It says this, Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, 
See the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Now, who are the sons of the prophets? That's kind of a strange title. Well, the prophets were God's men in the Old Testament who spoke on behalf of God. They were kind of like the preachers and teachers that you see in church. And they often would warn people about their sin, just like we do from God's word. And so God sent them, and they had a really hard job. Well, these were um, kind of sort of uh, prophets in training. This was a school of prophets. This was a school of prophets that was kind of like a cross between a seminary and a monastery. And just to give you a little bit of perspective, it was just a few years earlier that Elijah, we're talking about Elisha in this passage, just a few years earlier, earlier, Elijah felt like he was the only believer. You see, Elijah, who was the mentor for Elisha, at one point was running away from the king's wife, Jezebel, and he was hiding out in a cave. And he thought, I am the only one who loves God. And what he didn't know is that God was setting apart 7,000 men who would not bend the kneel to Baal, the foreign God. And so God was working within even this extremely hard, difficult time in Elijah, really a revival, a biblical revival. And I just, I know that sometimes we think that we're the only ones in our workplace or in our school. We kind of feel like we're the only ones or one of very few people that love God. As we look around, we are friends, our neighbors, our coworkers. It just seems like, are we really it? Is God going to do what he said he's going to do? The answer is yes. God is always faithful to his covenant promise. And he was showing Elijah in his ministry that he, oh, excuse me, that he always has a remnant of believers that he is setting apart. And so before Elijah is taken up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elisha, who is coming under him, actually takes over his ministry. Elisha um, actually asked before Elijah goes up if he could have a double portion of Elijah's um, ministry. And so while Elijah had about seven miracles or signs, Elisha had 14. And we're going to look at one of those signs, one of those miracles even in our passage today. So there's revival, right? It's now 7,000 men, families, all are, are following God. And now there's a whole school of prophets in training. And they said, Elisha, we've got to build a bigger school. We've got to, we, we, we got to expand the walls. Like God has been faithful. He's growing his followers. And so he said, they said, let's go to the, to the woods and let's start cutting down trees and let's build a bigger, bigger school. And they convinced Elisha to come with them as they were doing that. All right. So kids, let me ask you this. What happens if you were to take a brick and throw it in the water? What would happen to it? Just yell it out. It would sink. It would sink, right? All right. Just want to make sure we're all tracking with gravity and how it works, right? Okay. So you can imagine this scene. They're all cutting these, these logs down. 
And then something happens. Look at verse 5. It says, but as one was cutting down a tree, his axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, oh no, my master, it was borrowed. Okay? So heavier than a brick, it, it hits the water, it falls off the axe handle, and sure enough, it sinks. It sinks down the bottom of the Jordan. And he is very troubled by that. You know, again, you can imagine like the ax head flinging off the ax handle and it sinks down in the water. And as it's sinking, his heart is sinking. Why? Because it wasn't even his. It was expensive, it was valuable, and it was borrowed. Okay? Now, this is my second ring. And I was very fortunate to be able to get my grandfather's ring. But imagine um, that someone was to loan me a ring, let's just say. You know, they were to loan me a ring. And they said, well, this was my grandfather's ring. And I'll let you kind of wear it until you can uh, raise up enough money and, and, and earn enough money to be able to get your own ring. And imagine I was in the ocean and my wife grabbed that ring and it fell to the bottom. Again, now I've got to go to my friend and say, I've lost something incredibly valuable. You understand the dread that this man is feeling. See, this guy couldn't just go to Lowe's and Home Depot and buy a $30 axe head. Okay, the, 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 the big box stores didn't, they weren't around. They weren't available. Matter of fact, Israel itself didn't have the natural iron resources. It had to be imported. It had to be brought in from other countries. Extremely valuable. Extremely valuable. Extremely rare. This would have cost him many, many months of labor. Could have been financial ruin for this guy. Certainly could have cost him unemployment, major loss of profits, and even servitude. It could have put him, and this servant uh, um, made him a slave to this person who he had to pay back through his work. And again, this explains the prophet's cry, oh no, master, it was borrowed. You can hear the desperation in the voice of this individual. Let's look at verses six and seven. Then the man of God said, Elisha, said, where did it fall? And when the man showed Elisha the place, Elisha took a stick and he threw it in the Jordan and he made the axe head float. Listen to what I said. He took a stick and he threw it in the water and that heavy iron axe head came to the surface. That doesn't normally happen, right? You throw a brick in the water, kids. You can throw a stick in there all you want. It's not going to float unless God does an amazing miracle there. And that's what happened here, right? Well, some scholars try to explain this miracle by natural causes. Maybe the stick that he threw in was magnetized. That sounds reasonable. Not. Absolutely not. Um, Maybe Elisha really just kind of fished the axe head out of the, the uh, water with the stick. Right? We know that's not feasible. We know iron doesn't float. 
And we know they didn't have these incredibly strong magnetic sticks to pull that out of the bottom of the Jordan, right? This is a miracle, a work of God through his prophet Elisha. So why did God do this? Why did God make this axe head float? I mean, this is one of the more unusual miracles of Elisha. Like I said, he did about 14 of them. I mean, uh, he rose a, a woman's son from the dead. He purified a deadly stew that was unintentionally poisoned with a gourd. Uh, he healed Naaman of leprosy. Why, why did God give us a story like this? Well, without doubt, God wants his people to see that God has ordained and set Elisha apart as his man. And that the, the words he's speaking and the power that he gives Elisha is from God. For sure. But I, I love this passage so much because I believe as small and unimportant it seems that God has given us a passage like this because he wants you and I to understand that there's nothing too small and nothing too trivial that you are burdened over and afraid of and concerned and stressed that God doesn't consider important. God is concerned about every item of your life, even, quote, the little things. That God is king over all things, but he doesn't reign from a distant kingdom. He is actively involved in your life right now, in every single area of your life. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, and, and part of that word sovereignty is reign, means that God is king. But I want you to think about the idea of the sovereignty of God as sort of this umbrella of God's control, but under that umbrella of God's control is his providence. And his providence is how he provides, hence the word for you every single day, how he's involved in every single aspect of your life because he cares about all those things as little as they seem. Let me tell you what one of the historic creeds, the Heidelberg Catechism says about this. Right, written in the 17th century from, from Germany. Uh, 52 questions used every Sunday. To, it's very similar to the catechism that, that we use here at, at Strong Tower. This is what the, the catechism says about providence, this idea of providence. He sa it says this, the almighty and the ever-present power of God by which he upholds heaven and earth and all creatures and rules them so that, here, now check this list out. This is so beautiful. So that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly's, fatherly hand. All those things come from God. He is involved in all of those things in your life that God actually, he's not the author of evil or sin, but he brings and he ordains the droughts, the lean years, the sickness, and the poverty. All things come from God. What did Joseph say when his brothers were confronted by who he really was? He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for what? Good. All things come from God. 
right? Paul says that so clearly, Romans 8, 28, and we know for those who love God, all things work together for what? Good. Say it louder. I can't hear you. Good. That is good. All things work together for our good and God's glory. Now, kids, I said I wanted you to to, to listen out for this story about this kid who, who cut his foot. There was this boy, he cut his foot, and, you know, when you, you cut your foot, it bleeds a lot. But it wasn't a big cut. It wasn't a serious. He didn't have to go to the doctor. He didn't have to get stitches. He just had a Band-Aid. But he had this cut on his foot, and it was bleeding a lot, and he was afraid, and he found himself walking. It happened early in the day. He was limping around all day long because he had this cut on his foot, especially when Dad came home. He really started limping. He wanted his dad to see he had this cut on his foot. And so it came to the evening when the parents are with the boy, and they're, they're, they're praying. They, they are saying their prayers, and they're allowing this boy to pray. And the boy just starts going on, Lord Jesus, you know how sore my foot is. And he went on and on and on. And his mom said, you know, maybe, maybe we should go on some other things, because he just wouldn't stop. So he went on and started praying about some other things. And then once again, he said, Lord Jesus, you know how bad my foot is. And as they were finishing, the boy lifts up his, his leg, pulls his pant, his pant leg up, takes his sock, and, and puts his, his foot up in the air. And he says, maybe Jesus would like to see the cut on my foot. <laughs> and of course, the mother responded, I don't think Jesus would be interested in that. And the boy responded with shock, I bet he will. Isn't it interesting? This is what we've been talking about with the praying life. The book was with the grow class. Isn't it interesting and sad, really, how quickly we graduate from that childlike faith that God cares about the cuts in our foot? That, that, that we think that, that our spiritual life has to parallel our, 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 uh, our real life, if you will, in the sense that, yeah, we all have to sort of grow up. And, and unfortunately, that, that moves us sometimes to think that sort of I got myself together now. I've got to work hard. I don't have to depend upon anyone because I'm an adult. And God said, no, I want you to come to me like a child. I want you to come to me like that child. I want you to show me that cut on your foot. I want you to cry out to me like that man who said, oh, Lord, that axe head was borrowed. You see, God cares about the small things. God cares about your light bill. He cares about your loss of income. He cares about your difficult job. He cares about your vulnerable immune system. He cares about your fears and your confusions. He cares about inflation. He cares about the fact that that the gas prices keep going up and down and all over. He cares about all those things because he is your father, and he wants you to cry out to him like his children. We need to go back to that childlike faith. Isn't that what Jesus said when he looked to his disciples? He brought that child and said, you can't come to the kingdom. You can't come to the kingdom unless you become like this child. And that's what Jesus is saying to you today. How can you say this, Brian? How can you say that God cares about the intimate details in my life? Well, there was another miracle that happened that's a lot cooler than the axe head that floats, right? We're coming to this table today, children, to remember that God cares so much about you that he came down in the flesh, okay? We're taking, we're, we're gonna eat bread and we're gonna drink some juice and, 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 and we're going to remember that God came in the flesh, that he came down, that God actually entered into your pain. He actually entered into your fears. He actually entered into your confusions. 
He came into our world and became like us in every way except without sin. Why? Because you had an unpayable debt and I had an unpayable debt that was way bigger than an axe head because of our sin, which put us in debt to God because God is perfect and requires complete perfection. And so how did Jesus come and pay that unpayable debt that we couldn't pay? He had to become our substitute. And so children, every month we come to this table and we, 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 we take a bread and juice because we know that Jesus came and he gave up his life for us. And he paid that debt with his life that he actually came and he sunk into the waters of God's wrath and into the deep grave. But then on the third day, what happened? Jesus came up. He rose from the dead and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so we serve a resurrected King Jesus who cares about all the intimate details of our life. This is, I think, what the Apostle Paul is getting at in Romans 8.32. A lot of us know this passage. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Do you hear the logic of Paul? Paul says, if God didn't spare his own son, do you really think he doesn't care about your light bill? Do you really think that he doesn't care about your, your, your horrible marriage? Yes, he does, because he gave us his son. And so when you find yourself struggling to believe the promises of God, God actually is so gracious that he gives us a, a, a tangible sign and seal in this communion, in this Lord's Supper. Remember, kids, when, when, when uh, Noah came off the ark and God gave Noah and his family a rainbow? He gave him a sign that we can still see in the sky today. And it was a sign of God's faithfulness and his promise that he will never flood the earth again. Well, God has given us signs in bread and wine. One pastor called, one um, historic pastor uh, called it that, that the sacrament is, is a painted picture of God's promise. Because our faith is weak and we need painted pictures to strengthen our faith in God's faithfulness. Just like your parents read you storybooks with pictures. Until you learn how to read, you have to look at those pictures to see what's going on. God has given us his painted picture of his promise in this meal that we're about to take. God loves you, he cares about you, and he's given his only son for you. And he calls you to simply cry out in desperation, saying, I can't do this anymore, God. I need you. I need you to give me a new heart. I need you to give me the faith to love you. I need you to give me the faith to trust you. I need you to take over my life and be my Lord and Savior. That's the beautiful thing about the gospel. It's completely free. It's all of grace. The only fitness that is required, as that hymn says, is for you to feel your need, your need for him. The only fitness that is required is that you feel your need for him. This is the beautiful um, hope that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that uh, you have given us bread and wine uh, so and juice that we may uh, taste and see that you're good because so often our faith is super weak and we just find ourselves doubting your goodness and your faithfulness and your provision. 
And so, Lord, we thank you that you gave us a story in, in the Bible to show us that uh, whether we lose our Legos or stuffed animals or Barbies or axe heads or rings or whatever it is, that you care about us. You care about us and you love us and you're intimately involved in us and your providence is true. And what others meant for evil, you mean for good because we know that all things work together for that good. Lord, we love you and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.